Welcome, I'm Doug Morgan, and you're listening to Uncommon Sense, where we hunt for the truth in the topics you're not supposed to talk about, Christianity and politics. A week ago Sunday, the U.S. Senate passed the Inflation Reduction Act. (laughs) What will the Inflation Reduction Act do? Well, quite a few things, but none of them will reduce inflation. If you remember Joe Biden as a presidential candidate, he said that he would not support a tax increase for anyone making under $400,000. Well, the bill just passed in 2023 alone, so next year, shows that taxpayers earning less than $200,000 would pay $16.7 billion more in taxes. And taxpayers earning less than $500,000 a year see a $30.8 billion increase. Now, despite being called the inflation reduction bill, the bill will likely increase nearly near-term inflation. Um, It will uh, depress household incomes and produce the long-term deficits that fuel long-term inflation. So it's doing exactly the opposite of what it says it'll do. But does it reduce the deficit? No, quite the opposite again. The Daily Signal reports this. It says that the the deficits created by the bill and and the fact that they are front-loaded would increase federal net interest costs by more than $14 billion dollars a fact that is not reflected in the formal CBO uh, estimates. Now, CBO estimate is basically where the it, it's, it's a group of people that look at bills and they say, oh, this is how much it's going to cost. And before the bill is actually voted on, they can then give a report to the, uh, to the senators or the representatives. Uh, the CBO estimates uh, in this case um, that, that the bill is going to cost even less than what it actually will because they don't even calculate in the, the federal net interest costs. In total, the bill would add at least $110 billion to the federal deficit through fiscal 2031. To put that level of spending in perspective, $110 billion is roughly four and a half times NASA's annual budget, or nearly the cost of the, the ships in six U.S. carrier strike groups. In, in this case, however, the $110 billion will be used to buy more inflation. There are also tax hikes for businesses, too. The, the, the bill, bill's business tax hike will leave companies with no choice but to cut wages, uh, increase customers' uh, prices, uh, or, or, and or even cut future investments in a growing and prosperous economy. The, the bill's requirement that the government get a deal on on drug prices will simply mean that drug prices will go up for families and that research budgets for new life-saving drugs will be slashed. The stock buyback tax will uh, trap capital with uh, stagnant companies um, and, and will prevent investors from relocating those funds to new growing and innovative ventures. The, the $80 billion dollars that the IRS um, ha- has in a, in a slush fund in, in the bill 
will go to enforcement activities that will likely target low-income families and minority population groups. I mean, this part of the bill will likely double the size of the IRS. Yes, it, it the the IRS the way it is right now. If they if they take this money and they use it as they say they want to do to buy more IRS agents and to bring more IRS, I don't know where they're going to get all these people. But you know, if, if they are, if they're doing what they said they're going to do with it, it's going to double the size of the IRS. You know, maybe they could have used some of that eleven million dollars the IRS spent on ammunition in the last decade, instead of raising our taxes. I don't know what the IRS is doing with $11 million of ammunition, but, you know, they could have used some of that. Now, if all this was not bad enough, the bill also allocates a mountain of money on climate change spending. How does does reducing inflation, which is what this is supposed to be, or, or, you know, taking down the deficit, What does climate change have to do with that? It it is things like this that can get me so worked up with our current leadership. This is just one example of how leftists in in office are are doing the exact wrong thing for families uh, of, of this country. It makes you look at these people and see them like enemies. And in reality... They, they are the enemy, a political and ideological enemy. I, ha- I have to admit that when, that when China said that they would shoot down Nancy Pelosi's jet if she, if she flew to Taiwan, it made me ask myself, is that a bad thing? <laughs> but I, I, I do. I have to admit that. But, but, but as Christians, we're to love all people, even our enemies. So... How do we love people that we see as our enemies? Well, in an article uh, from Michael Brown from the Daily Wire, he says that if we genuinely believe that someone is hurting in our country, which means hurting our families and friends, hurting others, hurting us, how can we genuinely love them? We love the person we marry. We love our children. We, We love our close friends. But loving our enemies? How can we do that? For followers of Jesus, loving your enemies is not an option. Jesus commanded us to do this very thing, saying, quote, You have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. That's, of course, straight from Matthew. Now, Paul echoed these same sentiments, writing, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, and do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He even quoted the the ancient wisdom of Proverbs, which exhorted us to feed our, our hungry enemies and give drink to our thirsty enemies. That's from Romans. So really? God expects us to to show love to our enemies even in in practical tangible ways well absolutely the bible is quite clear on this and jesus by dying for the sins of the world set the highest example for us how then can we put this into action and follow this lofty you know ethical command 
Well, first, let's understand that Jesus, you know, what Jesus is saying here. He is not saying that we should stop opposing destructive ideologies. No, he's not saying that at all. He is not calling for moral or cultural or, or political apathy. He is not requiring us to soften our convictions or lower our standards. Quite the contrary, actually. Love does not mean passiv- uh, passivity. It, it, love does not mean compromise. To quote Paul again, he said, quote, Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. I love that from 1 Corinthians. But the Lord is calling us to be different than the world, not to repay insult with insult or attack with attack, not to fight nasty with nasty. He's calling us higher. In fact, this is what sets us apart. Our enemies might get, well, downright dirty, but we don't throw dirt in response. Our opponents might engage in slanderous mudslinging, but we don't slander them in return. And this brings us back to the question of how. How do we put this into practice? Well, first, we must remember that none of us are perfectly righteous and at, at, at that. I mean, if, if God gave us, gave each of us what, what we deserve, well, <laughs> we'd be in trouble, <laughs> right? If we got what we deserve, we'd be in big trouble. Compared to God's perfect standards, even one of Every one of us deserves judgment. And in that regard, we should walk with a limp, not a strut, right? Well, that was part of the reason Paul urged the Christians in Crete to slander no one, since at one time we too were foolish and disobedient and deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in in malice and envy. We we hated and and hating one another until Jesus forgave them and transformed their lives. That's that's directly from Titus. We then who receive so much mercy when we are ignorant and foolish and, and full of hatred should show mercy to those who, in our opinion, are ignorant and foolish and full of hatred. Perhaps they too are just moments away from a life-changing conversion. We don't know. Perhaps our godly example can help move them in the right direction. And secondly, let's recognize that, as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, quote, there is some good in the world in the worst of us, and some evil in the best of us. When we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. And so, every time you begin to hate that person and think of hating that person, realize that there is some good there. And look at those good points, which will overbalance the bad points. That's Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. In some cases, it is very hard to do this. What good is there to be found in someone who gets rich from trafficking children, let's say? But most are not like this. Most LGBTQ plus allies genuinely believe they are standing on the side of love and tolerance. Most pro-abortion advocates really think that they're helping women 
and, and doing what is best for the child is as crazy as that might sound. Many are, are caring spouses and, and devoted parents and loyal friends and, and good neighbors. Let us not lose sight of our shared humanity just because people vote differently than we do. But third, we can uh, cultivate love for our enemies by praying for them regularly. When, when we do, we begin to desire God's best for their lives. We want them to have a, a change of heart, not simply so our side wins, but for their own good as well. When it comes to the the child trafficker, for example, like we were talking about earlier, <clears throat> loving him would mean that we would rather see him repent and, and turn himself in rather than die in a shootout with, with the police. And if we have the opportunity to show our political opponents acts of kindness from the heart, not just an, an outward display, well, we should do so, don't you think? Fourth, we must understand that when we repay hatred with hatred, we become part of the problem rather than part of the solution. We lower ourselves and, and we defile ourselves. We also lose credibility in the eyes of a watching world. You, you're, you're no different than the ones you criticize, in other words. To quote Dr. Kingham, quote, if I hit you and you hit me and I hit you back and you hit me back and go on, you see, this goes to on ad nauseum. It just never ends. Somewhere, somebody must have a, a little sense. And that's the strong person. The strong person is the person who can cut off the chain of hate and chain of evil, unquote. Let's be determined to be the strong person in the room. The, the, the strength that, that requires restraint. Proverbs states that a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And though patient, a, a ruler can, can be persuaded, a gentle tongue can break a bone. Anyone can spout venom. Tearing people down is, is easy. But speaking the truth with love, without compromise or sugarcoating or watering down takes discipline and maturity, and it will also win the day. To quote King once more, <laughs> quote, here then is the, the Christian weapon against social evil. We are to go out with the spirit of forgiveness, heal the hurts, right the wrongs, and change society with forgiveness. You see, in the end, we will reproduce who we are. What kind of movement do we want to birth? Let us live it out and model it ourselves. But admittedly, really, this is a hard thing to do, and it, and it takes a lot of work. We don't often like to put in work <laughs> to do the thing, things that God is calling us to do. Oftentimes, He will call us to do something, and we're like, really, God? That just sounds like a lot of work. I don't have the time for that. I just don't have the, we make a lot of excuses. So many, many people just throw their hands in the air when they hear God say things and, and decide that they don't want anything to do with their political or ideological enemies, right? I mean, politics in particular, you know, I just, I, I just don't even pay attention to that kind of stuff. It doesn't interest me. I, and there's nothing I can do about it. What I mean, all these different things. 
they try to ignore the political arena for for you know all these different reasons that that we just got into but here are four reasons that christians should take care um uh, of of their 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 the political arena around them and really just just care about politics in general David Coulson, he's uh, of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and he writes, During the course of a presidential campaign, campaign, it is common to hear evangelicals, especially younger ones, quip, I'm just not that interested in politics, or politics just aren't my thing. These dismiss, dismissive remarks uh, are often delivered with a kind of a veneer of piousness, implying that political engagement is inherently defiled, um, occupying an arena unfit for those serious about the gospel. For those inundated with the telev- television ads and robocalls and campaign mail and, and the overall negative tone of politics, this might be a tempting position to adopt. However, it is not a position Bible-believing, gospel-loving Christians can or should accept as congruent with scripture. The message of the gospel is that grace through faith, sinners can be reconciled with God. Ephesians 2, 7 through 8. This message transforms individuals and it enables them to lead godly lives. Mandated by scripture, Matthew 28, 19, 20, Christians are charged to share the good news and disciple others in faith. The gospel is a holistic message with implications for all areas of life, including how Christians engage the political process. Here are four reasons Christians should care about politics. Number one, the Christian worldview speaks to all areas of life. A a frequently raised objection against Christian engagement with politics is that anything besides explicit preaching and teaching of the Bible is a distraction from the mission of the church. However, this is a limited understanding of the kingdom of God and contrary to examples in scripture. The Christian worldview provides a comprehensive understanding of reality. It speaks to all areas of life, including political engagement. In fact, the Bible speaks about civic government and provides examples of faithful engagement. In the Old Testament, Joseph and Daniel served in civil government, exerting influence to further the flourishing of their nations. In the New Testament, Jesus engaged in holistic ministry, caring for the the spiritual and the physical needs of people. Feeding the hungry and healing diseases were an outworking and an extension of the reconciliatory message of the gospel. Paul also advocates this approach. Quote, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, Galatians 6.10. And for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's Ephesians 2.10. Engaging in good works should include participating in the political process because of the legitimate and significant role of government. The decisions made by government have a substantial impact on people and the way we interact with them. 
a Christian worldview should include a political theology that recognizes every area of life must be included in the good works of believers, especially politics, an area with significant real-life implications for people. But secondly, politics are unavoidable. As sojourners and exilers, which that's what we are, according to 1 Peter 2.11, it can be tempting for Christians to adopt a mindset that earthly governing systems are insequential to the task of furthering the gospel. But as but ask a pastor in an underground church or a missionary attempting to access a, a closed country if politics are inconsequential. Religious liberty, passports, and visas are not necess- unnecessary luxuries, but are often vital for pastors and missionaries seeking to preach and teach the gospel. Augustine's City of God offered... Um, offers guidance on this point. Uh, believers are citizens of the city of God. But on this side of eternity, we also belong to the city of man and therefore must be good citizens of both cities. There are biblical examples of how membership in the earthly city can be leveraged for furthering the reach of the heavenly. Paul's appeals to this Roman citizenship Acts 6, uh, 16 and Acts 22, is a model of this. In, in an American context, engaging these dual cities takes on added significance because the, the words prefacing the Constitution, we the people, in the United States, ultimate national sovereignty, sovereignty is entrusted in the people. James Madison explained that the content of the people is the pure original fountain of all legislative authority. This reality makes politics unavoidable for American citizens who control their political future. Because, in other words, we don't have this king hovering over us making all the decisions. It's up to us to elect those officials that would be making those policies. Because uh, politics have real-world implications for Christians and Christian evangelism, and missions, and preaching the gospel, Christians ought to engage the political process by leveraging their rightful authority, advocating for laws and politics that contribute to human flourishing. All right, so number three, we need to love our neighbor. When when questioned by religious authorities on the law, Jesus explained that loving God with heart, soul, and mind was the greatest commandment, Matthew twenty two thirty seven. He added that second in priority was, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew twenty two thirty nine. Followers of Christ are called to love and serve their neighbors, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. And when asked about the qualifications of neighbor, <laughs> Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. 25 through 37, indicating that the irrespective of race, background, social status, and occupation, neighborly love is owed. And in a very real sense, politics is one of the most important areas in which Christians demonstrate love to neighbor. In fact, how can Christians claim to care about others and not engage the arena that most profoundly shapes basic rights and freedoms, caring for the hungry and thirsty and naked and sick and, and lonely is, is important to Jesus and should be to his followers as well. Jesus said, as you did to one of the least of these, you did 
to me, Matthew 25, verse 40. Fulfilling the biblical man, mandate to love neighbor and care for the least of these should be a priority for every believer. Again, a holistic approach is essential. Loving neighbor includes volunteering at a homeless shelter, as well as influencing laws that encourage human flourishing. Good government and laws are not negligible factors in the the, um, pursuit of freedom for a society. For example, the majority of North Koreans are held in economic bondage by corrupt political forces. Whereas South Korea, citizens are given liberty and the system that engages prosperity. The people of North Korea need more than food pantries and and improved hospitals. They need political leaders and and leadership and, and, and policies that recognize human rights. Advocating for these changes in, in totalitarianism countries is is crucial for loving our neighbors in oppressed areas. Obedience to the, the golden rule includes seeking laws that protect unborn children and, and strengthen marriages and families, advocate for the vulnerable, and provide opportunity for flourishing. But politics is a means of effective affecting great change and must be engaged by Christians who love their neighbor. And lastly, government restrains evil and promotes good. This is important. Government derives its authority from God to promote good and restrain evil. This mandate is explicitly stated in Romans 13, 1-7. Elsewhere, Paul urges that prayers must be made for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, 1 Timothy 2, 1-2. Paul understood the need for Christian participation in government. Government plays a role in the work of God's kingdom on earth. Good government engages and encourages an environment conducive for people living peacefully, whereas bad government fosters unrest and instability. Because of sin, the legitimate institution of government has, at times, been used illegitimately throughout history. However, numerous examples persist of Christians reasserting their influence and redeeming government to promote good and restrain evil. How Christianity changed the world. Uh, Alvin Schmidt documents Christian influence in, in, in government in this. Examples include outlawing infanticide, child abandonment, and gladiatorial games in, in, in ancient Rome, ending the practice of human sacrifice among Euro, uh, European cultures, banning pedophilia and, and polygamy, and prohibiting the burning of, of widows in India. William Wilberforce, a, a, um, a, he, he was a committed Christian, was the force behind the successful effort to abolish the slave trade in England. In the United States, two-thirds Yes, two-thirds of abolitionists were Christian pastors. In the 1960s, Martin Luther King Jr., of course, a Christian pastor, helped lead the, the, the civil rights movement against racial segregation and discrimination. Carl Henry rightfully stated that Christians should work through civil authority 
for the advancement of justice and human good, to provide critical illumination, personal example, and vocational leadership, as he put it. This has been the historic witness of Christians concerned about government promoting good and restraining evil. Jeremiah 29.7 says, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you in, into uh, exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Referring to Babylon, of course, the, the prophet reorganized uh, that secular government um, and, 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 re- and recognized that it served a legitimate purpose in God's plan for Israel. And this is still true. Today, good governments promote literacy and advance just laws and provide religious liberty and allow churches to preach and to teach. And good government can serve as a conduit for the furthering of the gospel and human flourishing. Christian witness in the, in the public square constitutes transient values about moral and ethical issues. Christian withdrawal opens a moral vacuum and, and in, in which there, there is drawn into that evil. Politics affects, gov- uh, affects government. It shapes society. It influences culture. Because of, of what the Bible teaches and the inevitability of its effect on our culture, Christians must care about politics. And it doesn't matter what kind of, of uh, ex- examples or, or things that we come up with that, that are just basically excuses. We have a mandate given to us by God that we need to care about politics and we need to do what he's called us to do in that arena. And you may agree with this and you may disagree with this. And I would love for this to be a starter of a conversation with you. And you can always do that at uncommonsensepodcast.com. Thank you very much for listening. This podcast is a production of Morganite.